Um, open up your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. You'll be thrilled to know that I am reading from the LSB tonight. Well, Joel will be thrilled to know. Some, someday, somewhere, some, someplace, Luke Carr is in tears because I have compromised. Um, can't find anything in this Bible, but we'll try it tonight and see how it goes. Uh, Titus chapter 3, uh, verse 3. Actually, let's begin in Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to be peaceable, considerate, demonstrating all gentleness to all men. For we ourselves also once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. But when the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Christ or Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let's pray together. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this passage. We're so thankful that uh, we can read your word. And read one verse after another and be struck again and again by your marvelous grace. You are not a God who has spoken to us quietly, but has spoken to us clearly and loudly in your word. And I pray that I would be an instrument tonight to show forth the glorious truth, the deep truth of your word as it plainly is before us. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. How do believers deal with bad memories in their life? How do you, as a Christian, handle bad memories? Now, the definition of a a bad memory is as follows. A bad memory is something in your past that brings you guilt, shame, embarrassment, defeat, and even fresh temptation. I'll say that one more time again, if any of you want to write it down, just to have it in your head. A bad memory is something in your past that brings you guilt, shame, embarrassment, defeat, and even fresh temptation. Now, we probably could add to that definition. That was just one that I jotted down. When I think of bad memories in my life, that's what I Think of it. It could be something that you have done that has caused these feelings, and it could be something that someone has done to you. They are bad memories, and, and they are often triggered, often triggered in our lives. Uh, maybe it is you return to a certain place. Last summer, and the summer before, I returned to my hometown in central Minnesota. And the majority of the memories I had were bad. (laughs) I just, I don't know what it is about memories, but it seems as though it's the worst memories that come back to me 
the most. Going down a street, going down an aisle in a library, the worst memories that bring back guilt, remorse, or maybe they are brought back to you by certain persons. You, You see them and you're reminded of something. Or maybe they're brought back to you by a certain smell. Sounds weird, but it's true. <laughs> Memories are weird like that. Maybe they're brought back to you by a certain song that you have heard. Maybe nobody else around you has such memories attached to this song, but when you hear this song, you hear evil because of something in your past. Maybe it's something you read, like an old journal entry. There is rarely a time where I read a journal entry of mine and am encouraged. <laughs> Maybe it's a letter. Maybe it's a picture album of some kind. Whatever it is, it's, a, it's something that comes back to you that causes guilt, shame, embarrassment, and perhaps even worse, defeat, and even fresh temptations. And bad memories, as, as I've already kind of stated, are painful. And they repeat themselves. And they seem to linger. And that's what makes them so challenging. They are like a rock in your shoe. Every time you step on that foot, you remember. They are like a scratch on that DVD. Every time you get to that part of the movie, it stops. That's, That's a reference that Already, some of you don't even understand. But I had to change that illustration from LP record to VHS to DVD. And even that's out of date now. They are like a pothole on the road. Yep, there it is. And as a result, often you you get swept up in these memories and you feel that defeat and that embarrassment all over again. And matter of fact, sometimes it's even worse. It's even worse. And as embarrassment rises, suddenly, if it was attached to a specific temptation, temptation can come as well in that defeat as well. Bad memories. Bad memories. Are bad memories good? What should a believer do about bad memories in their life? Now, there's some bad advice, some bad Christian advice about what you should do with bad memories. I'll give you some bad Christian advice on bad memories. Uh, The first bad advice is that you should be a super Christian. You shouldn't have bad memories. You should be forgetting what lies behind and pressing on to what lies before. What in the world are you doing lingering in bad memories? And of course, they take the verse Philippians 3.13, forgetting what lies behind and Focusing forward on what lies ahead. And they they say real Christians are so caught up in the pursuit of Christ, they do not remember the past anymore. You should be a super Christian that doesn't remember these things. Well, there's a problem. What if you can't forget? Or how about this? What if that verse is taken completely out of context? Philippians 3.13, Paul is not talking about past bad memories. Paul is actually referring to former ways in which he pursued to the achievement of righteousness. 
And now he's saying, I'm forgetting those ways because I have now come to the righteousness that can only be found in Christ. The, the only righteousness that is, 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 is going to bring me before God is found in Christ. So I forget any other way of being righteous before God. So that's bad advice. You should be a super Christian that doesn't have bad memories. Or how about this for some bad advice? You should try to get rid of your bad memories. Now this sounds good, right? I should get rid of something that's bad. And of course, this is what some people pursue through memory healing uh, seminars, through maybe medication or some sort of a drug or something like that. Uh, Maybe they pursue something to dull the memory in some way, and they try to forget about things by, by filling their minds up with other things that are new vices, new distractions. Some people even uh, think of their bad memories as demons in their past. How many times have you heard that phrase? I need to, to exercise a few demons out of my memory. I need to cast demons out. The problem is, the problem is, and, 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 and let me just clarify before I say the problem. I, I'm not saying medications necessarily are the problem. But the problem with, with bad memories is they are ultimately spiritual things in your life. And dealing with them as though they are just merely physical things is approaching them in the wrong way. This is a spiritual problem more. As a matter of fact, the Bible doesn't tell you, it doesn't seem to tell you to try to remove bad memories. The Christian appears to have a B.C., a before Christ that they are aware of. And there seems to be some sort of usefulness in bad memories. So I don't think the, the, the pursuit of trying to get rid of bad memories necessarily is right either. Or maybe there's another Another piece of bad advice that you would get, uh, you shouldn't be ashamed. You shouldn't be ashamed of anything. And, and you could take this advice one or two ways. Uh, you could take it as, 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 a, as a type of, quote, Christian advice that says, hey, you shouldn't be ashamed of anything. Any desire that God has given you, you should be you, be who you are. Everything in your past you should be unashamed of. You should just embrace it. Celebrate it. That's what our society wants us to do. Now, there's a big problem with that. The Bible calls you to follow Christ in repentance. You should turn away from certain things in your past. There should be something in your past that's bad that you're turning away from to turn to Jesus. So that's not the right way to do it. Or some people might say, you, some people should say you, you shouldn't be ashamed of anything. And perhaps this would be more of a, a Christian counselor approach where, where they're attacking the idea of shame as if it's completely bad. You should be ashamed of nothing in your life. Now, perhaps that's a new thought to you. I, I think, and, and I think we see this from the, the pages of scripture, that there is a shame that God wants you to have. But all of these tactics, all of this advice, I mean, when they don't work, they'll ultimately lead to a final piece of bad Christian advice. And this isn't really advice that you're receiving. It's more advice that you're just hearing in your own heart and in your mind and in your conscience. And this advice for bad memories would be, I should be defeated. I should be defeated by this memory. It's here, and I'm defeated by it. By it. 
it's, it's a memory that comes back and reminds you again and again and again, well, that's why God shouldn't love me, I guess. And it's a memory that comes back again and again to try to pound into you the defeat that says, well, if I can't be a super Christian, I might as well not be a Christian at all. And I might as well just return to that area of sin and temptation that this bad memory reminds me of anyway. But I would say uh, the Bible doesn't call you to deal with bad memories this way. The Bible doesn't call you to be a super Christian with no memory and without shame. The Bible doesn't call you to that at all. The Bible actually has a lot to say about how the Christian remembers their past. And notice this, particularly about how the Christian remembers their shameful past. The worst days in their life. The Bible has a lot to say to you about that. And I would suggest to you, submit to you tonight, that God has a purpose in your past for greater Christ-likeness in your present. Let me say that again. God has a purpose in your past, through your past, for greater Christ-likeness and Christ-pursuing in your present. God doesn't want you to remove the past. God wants you to redeem the past. God doesn't want you to remove bad memories. God wants you to reinterpret and redeem bad memories. How does the Christian have a redeemed memory? Now, I'm going to be I'm going to shoot straight with you. This is an introduction. But the introduction of this sermon is going to feel a whole lot more like the sermon, and the sermon is going to feel a whole lot more like the introduction. I'll let the reader understand. So uh, take notes, if you will. How, this is just, just kind of doing a jet tour over the Bible, how does the Christian, the person who follows God, have a pursued memory? Or, sorry, a redeemed memory. Number one, a, a redeemed Memory actively interprets the past through truth. The redeemed memory, the Christian's memory, if they so choose to pursue the reinterpretation of their memory, interprets, actively interprets the past through the truth of their God. Even if it's something evil that you've done. Even if it's something evil that was done to you, the Christian thinks about their past in an interpretive lens that is formed for them by the truth of Scripture. Number one, this is what you believe. You believe this about your past if you are a child of God. You, you believe that God was there. You have to believe that. You have to believe that he was not hard of hearing in that moment. You have to believe that he was not asleep. You have to believe that he was not on vacation. You have to believe that he was not distracted by another problem because he is the omnipresent God who is everywhere. And he's all-powerful. He is not distracted by something. 
He is everywhere and focused on everything at all times. That's why the psalmist says in 139, right? Where can I go from your spirit? I, I get to the other side of light speed and you are there waiting for me. This is what we hear about in the Bible, about the people who know their God, right? Genesis 50, verse 20. Uh, Joseph said this to his brothers, who, by the way, sold him to slavery and then sent him to Egypt, which as a result cast him into prison because he was, mis- he was misjudged by someone and thrown into prison for a very long time, in which he spent years of his life in the, darkest, in the darkness of dungeons, Right? That's Joseph. And this is what he is saying to those brothers in Genesis 50, 20. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In order to do what has happened on this day to keep many people alive. Joseph looks back on his past and the evil that's done to him and even the evil that he did perhaps, but primarily the evil done against him. And he can say with crystal theological clarity, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. By the way, by the way, did you know that all memories are interpretations, right? You're not remembering the facts as they were. You're remembering the facts as you have interpreted them. The Christian simply actively pursues the interpretation of their past through the truth of God's word. They say, I am not going to leave this up to my feelings I'm not going to leave this up to my desires. I am not going to leave this up to my guilts. I am not going to leave my past up to my expectations. I'm not going to leave my past up to what anybody thinks. I am going to interpret my past through Scripture. And they can say, I believe that God was there. And they can even say, I believe that God had providential power and control, even in my worst moments, where I can say, this was meant for evil, but God somehow, mysteriously, sovereignly, providentially meant it for good. Here's a a key truth to remember. A bad memory, reinterpreted through God's truth, becomes a redeemed memory. A bad memory reinterpreted through God's truth becomes a redeemed memory. And and here's what I want to say to you tonight. A redeemed memory is valuable. A redeemed memory is valuable. Let me show you a few ways in which a redeemed memory is valuable. Number two, so kind of like this was A redeemed memory actively interprets the past through truth. And now we're talking about how a redeemed memory is valuable. So how is a redeemed memory valuable? This is what we see from God's word. A redeemed memory is valuable as a deterrent from sin. A redeemed uh, memory is valuable to keep you away from sin. To fix a taste of sin in your mouth and turn your feet away from that sin. A redeemed memory is valuable. The Christian's memory of the squalor of their sin motivates them to not ever get close to it again. 
Listen to this verse from Proverbs 26:11. Like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. That's, that's who a fool is. A fool is someone who doesn't have a redeemed memory. A fool is someone who doesn't remember how sin felt in its consequence and in its sting. And the fool returns to his sin like a dog that returns to its vomit. The Christian, though, with even the slightest fragrance of that same old temptation, will remember the putrid pile and flee. That's a Christian with a redeemed memory. I know what this was. I know how this temptation worked. And it bit me in the end. Or how about this verse from from Romans 6.20? When you were slaves of sin, Paul writes, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then having from the things of which you are now ashamed? The the Christian sees their former life as a freedom to only sin. I was enslaved to only sinning. I had no choice but to sin. Sin was inevitable. I I had an inability to please God. But now they have received grace to obey. Look at this. They are ashamed of those days. They are ashamed of those days. What does this mean? It means a grace, as Romans 6.1 would say, doesn't lead you to continue in sin But grace leads you to running as far away as you can from sin because you see that that life in sin was slavery to sin. Inability to do good. Or how else is a redeemed memory valuable? A, A redeemed memory is valuable for thanksgiving. Thanksgiving in your life comes from Often redeemed memories. Uh, Believers who remember their sin thank God more, praise God more, love God more. Think about that. Uh, It's right over there. Turn over to Titus or to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1. 1 Timothy 1. Here it is, right? Paul remembered his past. He remembered it in vivid detail. And he used it for godly purposes. And right here we see that Paul remembers his past and it results in his present thanksgiving to God. By the way, side note, remember thanksgiving? Thanksgiving is the cheat code in your life. It's the cheat code to purity because where thanksgiving is, purity cannot thrive. Thanksgiving is the cheat code in the believer's life. And here Paul uses his past to fuel his thanksgiving. What does he say? Uh, 1 Timothy 1 verse 12, I am grateful to, to Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because he has regarded me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. 
and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Notice this. Paul remembers his past in detail. And notice this also. Paul can't get over the mercy and grace of Christ in detail. The the depths in which his memories take him, take him also to thanksgiving, praise, and love for his God. Because his God has had mercy on him. The redeemed memory is, listen to this, thankful for their past even. Why? Because their past leads them to celebrate God in thanksgiving and love and joy. The believer, even with the worst memories, can even say to God, thank you for this, for it reminds me of your love and of your care and of your providence and of your goodness. Or how about this one? You remember... Remember that story that Jesus told um, at a Pharisee's house of two debtors? The context there is just too good, too. And we'll try to read it here. This is Luke 7. Luke 7. Jesus tells about how to tell if someone is truly forgiven. He says, it's very obvious. You, you can tell the person who has been forgiven. You, you can tell the person who loves their God the most. Jesus, here, here, Luke 7, verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees was asking him to eat with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume and standing behind him at his feet, crying, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And she kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, saying, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. (laughs) And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, and the other 50. Denarii, by the way, is a day's labor, so we got about, we got a, a few days, uh, few, 50 days pay, and then we've got about two years pay right there. Uh, and then Jesus goes on, verse 42, when they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose, and I'm sure he didn't like answering this, by the way, I suppose the one who he graciously forgave more. And he, Jesus, said to him, you have judged correctly. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears. And wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. 
But she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she has loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Jesus is saying right here, look at this. Here is an example of someone who has been forgiven. And I'm going to declare it to her now. You have truly been forgiven. This is how a redeemed memory works. A redeemed memory can't get over the fact that God has forgiven you. can't get over the fact that God has forgiven you of all that you have done. Uh, A redeemed memory has nothing to do with selfish living anymore, selfish holding back. Uh, A redeemed memory is selfless living for Christ, giving generously for Christ, devotion to Christ. It is fine with being shamed by associating with Christ, a redeemed memory can't get over the forgiveness they have received in Christ Jesus. And notice the the implication here. Notice that two debtors forgiven. One, who by implication is this Simon, didn't need much forgiveness, did he? And he loves But the person who has been forgiven much, who sees the weight of their situation before God, loves much. The redeemed memory looks at Christ with thanksgiving all the day. There's this quote by Robert Murray McShane. For every look at your sins, take ten looks at Jesus Christ. Another way in which a redeemed memory is valuable. A a redeemed memory is valuable for humility. Notice this. It's it's, it's valuable as a deterrent. It's, it's, It's valuable for thanksgiving. And it's valuable for humility. Here, we're on humility. Christians with pride should be ashamed of how poor their memories are. If you're, if you're still in it, uh, hold up there at 1 Timothy again. 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 1. And it continues on in, in verse 15, right? It is a trustworthy statement saying, and deserving of full acceptance, says Paul, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, whom I am the foremost. Just, just, a, just a question I always have when I read this part of the Bible. Do you really think that the Apostle Paul is the worst sinner? I mean, he did a lot of bad things. But don't you think we could find a worse sinner? I don't, I don't think God is ever going to maybe tell that information, perhaps. But I, I don't think that's what Paul is saying. He is saying, God has given me special revelation that I, I am the worst sinner. That would be kind of backwards in my mind. 
seems like pride. Uh, no, that's not what Paul is saying. But notice this. Why does Paul think that he is the lowest of the lows? Well, because he has a redeemed memory. A redeemed memory gets lower and lower the closer it gets and understands the grace of God toward it. You get lower and lower the closer you see the goodness, the kindness, the affection of God towards you in Christ. The more you understand the gospel, the more humble you must be. Or Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, I am the least of the apostles and not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. How about this for a funny little phrase, right? The, the redeemed memory is thoroughly reformed. The redeemed memory believes totally in God's sovereign grace in their life, and that causes them complete humility. I am a grace case. That's all Paul can say. It is only because of the grace of God that I am what I am. It's not because of something good I have done, but solely and fully in the grace and love and kindness and mercy of God towards me in Christ. Mercy. I am a grace case. But one more value. A redeemed memory is valuable for usefulness. A redeemed memory is useful. Those who see their past through the truth of God's word are diligent and useful in the present for God. Back over in 1 Timothy 1.16. Verse 16, uh, yet for this reason, Paul says, I was shown mercy, so that in me the foremost Christ Jesus might demonstrate all of his patience as an example for those who are going to believe upon him for eternal life. Notice Paul says, this is the reason why I, the chief of sinners, was given mercy, and it was to demonstrate something to you about the grace of God in Christ. The Christian with the redeemed memory is a walking, talking demonstration of the gospel. They are a source of hope and encouragement to others because of their humility, because of their thankfulness. Because of their deterrence, they are a walking, talking demonstration of the glorious grace of God, which freely forgives, removes sin by placing it on Christ, and freely empowers total life change. They are a walking, talking demonstration of God's grace. Paul also says in 2 Corinthians 15.10 again, I labored even more than others. There is a heightened love for God. Remember, there is a heightened love for God with the highest work ethic for those who have the greatest redeemed memories. There is unending love, unending devotion, unending thankfulness, unending generosity, unending willingness to spend and be spent for Jesus Christ, 
There is an unending willingness to be attached to the name of Jesus. It doesn't matter what the stakes are. It doesn't matter what I lose. If I am to be named as Christ's, that is good enough for me. Remember what we said, Titus. Go back to Titus. Titus 3. Remember who people are who have received the grace of God? He gave himself for us, verse 14 of chapter 2 told us, that he might redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Those are people with a redeemed memory, with a knowledge of who they were, and a joy in who God was to them, in who they were. Oh yeah, Titus. Notice, notice how Paul, okay, we're back in Titus now. Notice how Paul uses a bad memory for motivation in the, the Cretan's life. Verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work to slander no one, to be peaceable, considerate, uh, demonstrating all gentleness to all men. For, verse 3, for we ourselves also once were. Christians should be motivated by their shameful past in their pursuit of godliness in the present. Right? That's, that's what, he's, what he's saying there, right? Four, this is the basis under which Paul is giving this exhortation. Remember those exhortations, right? This is how the Christian is to live before an unbelieving, watching world. And and remember, these reminders were given to these Christians for how they should live in relationships that were probably difficult for them, right? Uh, governing authorities, probably difficult. Uh, uh, relationships where slander is tempting, probably difficult. Relationships where peaceableness needs to be exhorted, probably a difficult relationship. Uh, relationships where they have to be gentle, that's probably a difficult relationship. And Paul gives these commands in that context. And notice, these commands are surrounded by the grace of God and the sinfulness of their past. Right? The grace of God. Verse 11 of chapter 2. The grace of God. Verse 5 of chapter 3. Of their sinfulness. Verse 12 of chapter 2. Verse 14 of chapter 2. Verse 3 of chapter 3. This is the context that, that surrounds all of this exhortation for how you are to live before unbelievers. And notice what Paul says. We ourself once were. He uses a particular verb form here, were, that speaks of past, ongoing, habitual activity. We kept on being this way. What, what is it? That, what, what are the bad memories here in Titus chapter 3 that Paul wants us to use redemptively for godliness? Let's just, let's just tackle the memories. There's, I had five of them. There might be six. But I, I shortened them to five because I love you. See? Number one, first bad memory. Hey, you remember that, that I was living in sin's ignorance. 
I was living in sin's ignorance. I was foolish. I was foolish. I was repeatedly foolish. I was continually foolish. I couldn't stop being foolish. Foolishness is to be dull-witted, to be unintelligent. Uh, Foolishness is to be uneducated. Uh, spiritually speaking, foolishness it means you have your, uh, your spiritual receptors dead. E- even the most brilliant people in the world are foolish because they are ignorant of their condition and position before God in sin. They are foolish. And they sin again and again. Why? Because they are foolish. Now, notice here that we don't mean to say that foolishness is innocence. Foolishness is not innocence. This is a lifestyle in which they just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again and have no concept of truth or God in their life. They are foolish. But also, another bad memory, I was also living in sin's rebellion. Not only was I living in sin's ignorance, but I was also living in sin's rebellion. Sin makes you a rebel against all authorities in your life because it is natural in you to resist any other will but your own will. And that's why we know this foolishness is not innocence. This foolishness is rooted in rebellion. Now, listen to me very closely. Your problem is not that you have a God-shaped hole in your life. Your problem is sin. And your sin is personal rebellion against God in your nature. That is your problem. And this sinfulness, this personal rebellion against God by nature, manifests itself, shows itself, demonstrates itself in activity. That is your problem. You are foolish in rebellion. Disobedient. That's the word that Paul has for us. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient. That is the word for rebellion. But there's another bad memory that can be useful for us. Not only are we foolish, disobedient, or rebellious. You also remember this, that I was living in sin's slavery. I was deceived and I was enslaved. He says that. See those two words? Deceived and enslaved. Something was leading you, luring you, lying to you, telling you lies about God and lies about this world and leading you astray. You were deceived. You're in sin slavery. And we know this is, this is most likely referring to the devil himself. It says in 1 John 5.19, We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He controls by lies all of those that are not of God. And we also know in Revelation 12.9 it says, The serpent is described as the deceiver of the nations. We, we are deceived, but I got i got a real amazing little twist for you. We are not enslaved, it doesn't seem like, by Satan. Notice, we are enslaved also, but to various lusts and pleasures. 
Our slave master is sin itself, lust itself, what we feel is pleasurable itself. That is our past. Slavery to passions and pleasures, and those passions and pleasures are so empty, limited, temporary, vanishing. And this presents a frightful, shaping picture, doesn't it? Not only are you living in, what has we got here? Sin's ignorance, sin's rebellion, sin's slavery, but also it builds, it builds. This is all the result, this all results into something. Number four, I, a bad memory, number four, I was living in sin's normality. This was normal life to me. Rebellion, enslavement, Ignorance was normal to me. I get that from the phrase there, spending our life in malice and envy. Spending your life. This, this refers to the normal life cycle, right? This is how I spent my days. Because sin's enslavement is from within and not from without or above. Sin, pleasures, lusts seem normal. And godliness seems strange. That is the believer's past. Matter of fact, notice notice what's so normal about your past. In malice, in envy. Malice is just a general word for ill will. Uh, It's mean-spirited, general word for for just an evil, evil inclination, evil bent towards someone else. I just don't feel good about you. Uh, By nature, we, we don't like anyone. Right? By nature, the first thought we have towards others is resistance and evil. What's in it for me? Before I like you, what's in it for me? And then also in envy. This is a a greedy desire to have something that somebody else has. So, So notice, this is normal life. This is the bad memory of the Christian, right? I am the only one who deserves special treatment. And I'm angry at anyone who gets a treatment that I think I should deserve. That is normality. That is your life day to day in sin. And this, all of it, results in a very, very gruesome final memory. Not only were you living in sin's ignorance, sin's rebellion, sin's enslavement, sin's normality, But you're also, you have a bad memory that I was living in sin's ugliness. Ugliness. Notice that word. I was continually despicable. Despicable. This refers to something that is loathsome to behold. Something that you don't want to look at, right? That's despicable. And this is the result, the effect of unrestricted sin in your life. And notice, you see despicableness from the youngest age even to the oldest age. There is a despicableness about a two-year-old that doesn't obey. There is an ugliness about it. There is an ugliness and a sadness and a, I almost want to look away from it. 
in an older person that has had no restrictions in their life. It is an ugly life. And, and notice how Paul describes it in ESV. It's hating, be, um, being hated and hating one another. That is your whole life in your past. I hate and people hate me. But this brings a, a question. And in true Russellian terms. But what about you? Surely this isn't referring to me. This is not my bad past. Maybe, maybe your sin is a little bit more secret, a little more subtle, a little bit more sneaky. Maybe you were saved at a young age. And you don't really remember much. You're from a good family. You're protected from a lot of things. What if your new birth was early? Or, to put it maybe in this way, what if your testimony is just frankly boring? Right? Grew up in a Christian home. Accepted Jesus when I was three. Well, this, let me just point you to one final thing in verse three. Isn't it interesting to you Because it's interesting to me that Paul puts himself among these sinners. He doesn't say, you were once yourselves foolish. He says, we. Why does he do that? This Paul... Correct me if I'm wrong here, but Paul had a very different life from what we see in Titus 1.12, right? Uh, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. That was not Paul's history. That was not, right? Turn over to Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. This is Paul's kind of resume of his life. He says this in Philippians 3 verse 4. I myself have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. And then he lists all of his assets, his spiritual assets. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Notice this. He has inherited tremendous spiritual assets. He was circumcised. He is of the right nation. He is of the tribe of Benjamin, which maybe to you, biblical scholar that you are, is like, Benjamin's not good. Saul came from Benjamin. I'll remind you that Benjamin was the only tribe that stuck to Judah when the other tribes split away. So to be a member of Benjamin kind of has a little bit of a pride factor to it, right? I am from Benjamin. Oh, Benjamin. So glad. Not Zembulun. No, no. Not Manasseh. Benjamin. (laughs) He has inherited all of these assets. And that's not all. He has also achieved so many assets as well. What else does he say? As to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. 
Paul's past was not. Titus 3.3. 3. So why does he loop himself in? Is he just trying to make them feel good? I'm, I'm here with you, but I am from Benjamin. But I am here with you, right? No, I would suggest to you, when Paul looks at his past, he sees this. He sees foolishness. He sees rebellion. He sees enslavement. And he sees normality in the most malicious way. And he sees ugliness. Why? What does he say in verse 6 of Philippians 4? Uh, verse 7. But whatever things that were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I count all of those things as liabilities, not assets. Why? Because he has come face to face with the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ, and he knows that none of these things that he does will bring him to God. Because he knows the standard. It is the righteousness of Christ, and he cannot achieve that in and of himself. And so he says, anything that might fool me into thinking that I can work my way to God is a liability, and I will cast it away. I will forsake it. I will forget it in my pursuit of following, knowing, placing my faith in Jesus Christ. It's the same thing with you. Remember, the closer you get to God's grace, the more you see of God's holiness, the more you understand God's mercy the more you realize what it means to have propitiation, all the wrath for my sins on Christ, on the cross, instead of me, the more you see any area of your sin as horrid. You taste His mercy. You just taste it. And your rebellion is more and more striking. The redeemed memory does not see a past life of mistakes, mess-ups, weaknesses, small, slight sins. The redeemed memory sees a past life of evil rebellion. Even if it was in the smallest form, it cost Christ his life. Even the most boring testimonies can say, I do not deserve to be here. That's why Paul brings up these bad memories. And notice the context one more time. It's to motivate them to depart from their past. It's to increase in them a compassion for the lost. Right? I, I too, was there. But it's also to increase in them a humble zeal for God. A humble zeal for God. An eagerness to show godliness wherever they can. Now, I've got to warn you real quick. A real gospel humility doesn't always look like someone who is wretched in and of themselves. One more thing. C.S. Lewis has this really fun quote about 
how a humble person looks. I would suggest to you that a truly humble person that sees their sinfulness before God is actually incredibly normal. They're peaceable. They're gentle. They're kind. They're not going around uh, laboring to tell you how sinful they are. They're, they're not actually concerned about themselves at all. They're, they're concerned about you. This is what C.S. Lewis says in, in Mere Christianity. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person. First off, just smarmy. What in the world? What kind of word is that? It, it refers to someone who is perceived as insincere or perceived as excessive. He is not a greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. (laughs) Uh, Probably all you will think about him is that he seems a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you felt a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. That is a person that's been saved by God's grace. I'm over me. I'm thankful for God's grace in my life. And it enables me to focus on you. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this uh, message from your word. And we pray um, that it would be instructive, convicting to our own hearts and minds, and and help to shape the way we think about ourselves and even our past. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.